Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. Stephen Root's the kind of character actor. You take even the most basic, dreary TV show or movie and light it up. It doesn't even take that much. One or two scenes with Stephen in it, you know, like a, say it's a police procedural or a, a regular kind of saccharine sitcom. And all of a sudden, it's really something. It's an amazing talent to have. Lucky for us, Root works in a lot of acclaimed films and TV shows, too. News Radio, he played billionaire Jimmy James, the man so nice they named him twice. Office Space, he was the meek, mumbling, stapler-obsessed Milton. On HBO's Barry, he plays Fuchs, the hitman's screwball boss, who also maybe is evil. It goes on. He was in King of the Hill, Get Out, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? He was even on Star Trek The Next Generation one time. But before we kick off my interview with him... I want to talk about one of those scenes that, I mean, I guess it just, it's just a perfect illustration of how brilliant he is. It's from The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, the recent film by the Coen brothers. It's basically six short films set in the Old West. Stephen stars in the second one alongside James Franco, and the setup is pretty simple. Stephen works at a bank in the middle of nowhere. James Franco is a robber who is there to rob him. But Root's character has the drop on Franco. A gunfight ensues. Franco's character's hiding behind a well, trying to figure out how he's going to get out of there, shooting back towards the bank. And then, what's that coming out from behind that wall? It's a totally deranged-looking Stephen Root. He's holding a rifle, and he is decked out head to toe in cast-iron skillets. And that's when he says this one thing. <laughs> Stephen Root, welcome to Bullseye. I'm so glad to have you on the show. Thank you so much. I am so sincere in my love and admiration for you yelling pan shot while dressed <laughs> in a suit of uh, cast iron pans. pans. Yes, which took three fittings to get it right because we had real pans, we had fake pans, we had string to put it all together it was it was a hard fitting you so, gotta have some you gotta have some heft there i imagine but yeah, then you no, also don't want to wear a full pan suit right you can't because you know some of them were so big and cast you know real cast iron they'd weigh 20 pounds a piece anyway it's still the whole thing must have weighed 70 pounds anyway but <laughs> <laughs> um you've worked with the coen brothers a bunch of times now and mm. i wonder if when they send you a script that has as dense, a heightened, and ridiculous of language as there is in this script, in that short and Buster Scruggs, mm. um, whether there's you guys have like a meeting where you discuss in what particular ridiculous way you're going to intone these words, or whether you just so show up on set one day with a with a take. And hope they like it. Yeah, pretty much that. Except that you know they'll both call on all the movies. They both got on on, on the phone and and called and said, "We've got this one." <laughs> <laughs> okay, what is it? It's this. 
All right. Um, and, and we don't talk too much about what we need to do because uh, they just as- assume that I'll do something weird with it, and, and I do. <laughs> and, and, and they'll direct, but it's, it's usually uh, less or more, quick, quick or slower, you know, so it's, uh, we're all pretty much on the same page, I think. It seems like you make uh, you have made a very specific choice in your career uh, not to do much of the same thing twice in the twice I'm trying in row. my best. <laughs> <laughs> is that just because you want to keep working, uh, or is that because you find it more satisfying to do? Well, at, at this age, it's more satisfying to do. I mean, because I'm I'm lucky enough to pick projects because I'm not really doing them for money uh, that much anymore. Just doing it for what I've always wanted to do, which was to be a character actor. And the ability to be able to pick things from good scripts as opposed to, you know, average scripts is a huge blessing. and It's just amazing. What do you mean when you say that you always wanted to be a character actor? What, what well, does that I mean? Always did, I always wanted to be Ed Asner, you know, <laughs> since I saw Mary Tyler Moore. I said this, you know, I, and I saw him in Roots. And I went, ah, oh, well, you can do different things. Um, but I, I, I was influenced by all the vaudeville guys and all the, you know, who ended up being the character actors of the 40s and 30s and 40s in the films. So I'm, I, I would love, love to be, um, you know, uh, Wizard of Oz. You'd do five roles. <laughs> you know, that would be, that'd be optimum. I'm still trying to get uh, Joel and Ethan to to double cast me, <laughs> which I think would be awesome. Nobody's doing that. Were you a performer as a kid? Never. I mean, never even considered it, no. So how did you come to consider it? I think probably uh, I got into college and, and started getting high, which <laughs> probably <laughs> loosened me up a little bit. Um, but yeah, no, I was never never wanted to be an actor type thing. It was never anything in our in our family, my mom was uh, – she went to Pratt for uh, drawing and design, but that was the most artistic, you know. But I think when I got to college and I said, uh, I don't know what to do. I was the school photographer and I said, maybe journalism? I don't know. So I, I started all the classes for that. And then everybody started talking like this. And I said, I've got to get out of here and get stoned. Uh, and I did. Uh, and that led me to a, a, an elective, an elective where I was a spear carrier, basically. And I went, that's interesting. And then uh, student directors would uh, put me in their thing. And, and I eventually realized very quickly within three months, I was like, ah, I'm switching. I want to do this. What was it about it? It was something I could do. Uh, it was something that I f- innately felt I was good at. I, and I think it's a truism that it, unless you have – there's something in you innately to be funny. You're, you're not really going to be funny. Um, and I, So I, I think I have that in me. I had, I have that gift and then you develop it. By the time you were done with college, were you set on becoming an actor? Oh, Sure. Um, I had no other marketable skills. I wasn't a great waiter, uh, although I did go to New York. And the first job I got was the National Shakespeare Company. And that was a bus and truck with 12 people and a trail, 1963 Trailways bus that we'd put up the productions in Woodstock. We'd rehearse for three weeks, one a week, had three of them. And then whatever school around the country would hire us to do 
you know, one of those three shows. Coriolanus or whatever. Well, we the first year we did uh, Hamlet, Midsummer, and Winter's Tale. Heard of them. Great. You know, because you were double cast and everything mostly because there are only 12 of you. And uh, you put up the set, you ran Sound Cube 47, and you popped out on stage. So, And you were playing in little little college theaters, 5,000-seat theater at West uh, West Point. You know, so there was always a different show, no matter what. It was the best training you could get. I heard that you actually didn't get that job before you did get it. That's correct. Yeah, I got the I got, I got basically the letter that you didn't you didn't make it the day I was leaving for New York with another uh, and I'd had another uh, I said I'm just going to make another appointment and go there and I did but I got the letter saying no I don't you don't know so I got to New York and, and they said did you get a letter I said no <laughs> <laughs> nope and uh, they said all right well you're here do your do your comedy, do your thing, and then I got hired from that. I came to know your work through News Radio, which ran in the mid to late nineties. Correct, and that is now more than twenty years ago. Mm-hmm. And I think that you are basically playing the same age on <laughs> Barry now <laughs> as you were on News Radio twenty years ago. Well, that's why they feel like they can beat me up on that show. It's like, folks, I'm sixty-seven. <laughs> you got to take it easy on me. <laughs> But I mean, I think you have aged into a kind of perpetual middle age yeah, that I'm... will never end until you are like truly elderly. Well, like I said, Ed Asner. There you go. Yeah. I I became Ed Asner. I'm going to play maybe your most famous scene from news radio. And by most famous, I mean not particularly famous, not that many people <laughs> watch all. the program. Uh, but important to me personally, emotionally, there is a, there's a plot arc on the show where Jimmy James, the owner of the radio station, writes his autobiography. Um, then many years later, it is translated into Japanese, becomes a surprise success in Japan. So they translate it back into English. Uh, for um, for an, an American re-release. Um, the original title of the book is Jimmy James, Capitalist Lion Tamer. And then uh, it, it ends up being Jimmy James, Macho Business Donkey Wrestler mm-hmm. uh, after being translated. And this is uh, you in the like bookshop reading event. <laughs> Let's take a listen. I wanted to read from Chapter 3, which is a story of my first rise to... Financial prominence. I had a small house of brokerage on Wall Street. Many days, no business comes to my hut. (laughs) My hut, but Jimmy has fear? A thousand times no. I never doubted myself for a minute, for I knew that my monkey strong bowels were... Girded with strength, like the loins of a dragon, ribboned with fat and the opulence of buffalo dung. <laughs> I, my recollection of that was, was like it was the most fun in the world to do, but I think... When we were filming, I had my rehearsal jacket on. So I think half of it was with a rehearsal jacket and half of it was without, (laughs) with another, my show jacket. (laughs) That's what I remember about that scene. (laughs) 
I mean, it is not what, – what's great about it is as I was watching The Ballad of Buster Scruggs um, and the kind of absurdly uh, florid language that your character uses in that movie, mm. I thought, you know, this is not that far off from – Jimmy James Macho Business Donkey Wrestler, or f- <laughs> for that matter, the Bard, upon, the Bard of uh, Stratford upon Avon, William Shakespeare himself. <laughs> like, there's a certain way in which you are simply committing entirely to something that borders on but is not quite nonsense. Yes, exactly. Kind of the definition of comedy <laughs> right there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let's take a listen to a scene from King of the Hill. Um, the the King of the Hill is is about the Hill family who are a kind of all American middle class family living in Texas. Um, Hank Hill, who is uh, voiced by the creator of the show Mike Judge, is a very responsible blue jeans and white t shirt wearing uh, dad. He sells propane, and in, in this clip, his friend Boomhauer is dealing with deep emotional pain over a relationship with a woman named. Marlene, who he has fallen in love with, but who considered him only a, a one night stand. And so Bill is, uh, which is my guest Stephen Root's character, yes. is trying to console Boomhauer. Um, <laughs> and Bill is a sort of pathetic, <laughs> sad man. <laughs> An army barber. That yeah. says it all, really. Who's <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> neighbors with uh, the Hills and Boomhauer. How dark it is for you right now, curled up, lying in your own emotional vomit. You're in hell now, Boomhauer. And the only way out is through a long, dark tunnel. And you're afraid to go in because there's a train coming at you, carrying a boxcar full of heartbreak. Well, let me tell you something. All you can do is let it hit you and then try to find your legs. Mm-hmm. I know. I've taken that hit more times than I can remember. <laughs> Look at me, Boomhauer. I'm fat and I'm old, and every day I'm just gonna wake up fatter and older. Then somehow I managed to drag this fat old bald bastard out into the alley every day. I'm out there digging holes, falling into them, climbing out, trying again, and tomorrow I'm gonna hang outside at a lady's prison. And the first thing those lady cons are gonna see after 20 years is me. Will I get one? Experience says no. Will I be out there next month? If I'm alive, you better believe it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Bill. Oh, baby. (laughs) More fun. More fun. You can't have more fun. I can't even imagine. I mean, the amount of uh, the amount of sadness carried within that character. (laughs) (laughs) My favorite line from the whole series because I'm carrying uh, Texas Governor Richards, who actually came in and, and, and did the show. Yeah. Uh, I'm carrying her she through. She did a good job, she, too, she Ann was, Richards, she the late fan- Ann Richards. She was fantastic. And I got to, you know, do it with her. She didn't do it separately. She did it with all of us, which was great. But I'm, I'm walking through a, a pond a, a pond with, with her, carrying her in my arms. And I get to say, I believe I stepped on a koi. <laughs> which is my favorite li- <laughs> which is my favorite line of bills ever <laughs> you started working on uh king of the hill in the middle of the run of news radio yeah right? what a what a what a pleasure and and a great 
great deal that was, yeah. I I think Mike had just known that I'd done a lot of Southern plays and I did a lot of Southern projects. So he had me in, and uh, I was thrilled to come in. So I always wanted to, to do some animated stuff. It's When you can't do theater, it kind of replaces that in terms of doing wild characters that you would never be cast for on camera. Um, so I came in, and, and he gave me... Dale Gribbled to to read, and I was like, no, I'm not, no. And then Bill was a perfect fit for me, and uh, he, they hired me for that. Later, I did uh, the boss, Hank's boss at the propane company. Yes, and then we all did just hundreds of other voices, whatever they needed that day. We'll finish up my conversation with the brilliant character actor Stephen Root after the break. Still on the docket, he'll tell me how he got the part in HBO's Barry and how he helped flesh out his character's role. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from ZipRecruiter. Hiring used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes. But today, hiring can be easy, and you only have to go to one place to get it done. ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards. Then ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash bullseye. Life Kit is like that friend you go to in your toughest parenting moments. So my answer was, do you believe Lucas? Oh, you're so Socratic. Life Kit for Parents, an audio guide from NPR and the experts at Sesame Workshop. Check it out in Apple Podcasts or at npr.org slash lifekit. Have you ever watched a movie so bad you just needed to talk to somebody about it? Well, here at the Flophouse, we watch a bad movie and then talk about it. Yeah, you don't have to do anything. We'll watch it and we'll talk it. We do the hard work. Featuring the beautiful vocal talents of Dan McCoy. Stuart Wellington. And me, America's rascal, Elliot Kalin. New episodes every other Saturday at MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcast, dude. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Here with me now, the actress Stephen Root. You've seen him in Get Out, in Office Space, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and literally hundreds of other movies and TV shows. He's also starring in HBO's Barry alongside Bill Hader. Season two of the show premieres later this month. You'd already been doing King of the Hill for a while when Office Space came up, right? Yeah, yeah. Another Mike Judge project. Um, and we... He... he, he commandeered a couple of us for a for a fox read of it um they were interested in it they wanted to hear it and we were on the fox lot anyway so he got me and dave herman and a couple of other people to go over and read it for him i'm not sure what any of the parties involved in the making or distributing of that movie thought they were getting or how far <laughs> off base they were from each other. Mm -hmm. Like, it would be hard to overstate how much of a cultural phenomenon Beavis and Butthead was or how tonally far Beavis and Butthead is from Office Space mm. or even King of the Hill for sure. that matter. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a long way. What did you think you were getting involved with when you signed up for it? A great B movie with friends. 
you know, because uh, Richard Reilly I had worked with in Black Rain, and we we'd see each other every day at auditions. So Richard came in and did it. McGinley see him all the time. I'd see Paul Wilson all the time. We'd go up against him. So it's pe- all people I knew, and plus Herman from King of the Hill. Uh, I didn't know Jen yet. Um, lovely. I didn't really work with her. And uh, so it was for me, it was a, a fun B-movie comedy to do in the summer in between news radio. Your character in the movie had been in some animations that Mike Judge made before the movie, right? Right. He did a two-minute pencil sketch of it where he did the voice. Um, and when he uh, asked me to do it for the read, uh, I, I, I looked at it and I said, I, w- I want to add a lisp, I think, and I want to I just want to weird it up like I do. <laughs> he said, yeah, I'll go, go ahead. <laughs> so I did. Um, let's take a listen to a little bit of Office Space with my guest Stephen Root playing Milton. Now, this, this, might be the, this might be the role that follows you to your grave, Oh, Stephen. Oh, absolutely. No, I, I think my obit is Milton dead, <laughs> I believe. Um, so he is a guy who works in the office who everyone kind of ignores and he stutters and he's quiet and he sits at his desk and he's sort of alienated from everything going on around him. Um, and in this scene, he is on the phone with uh, Peter, who's one of the software engineers at Inatech, the, the main character of the movie played by Ron Livingston. And he's listening to Milton vent about work problems, but then he gets distracted when he sees uh, the vice president of the company, Bill, coming by. But I said, I, I don't care if they lay me off either, because I told I told Bill that if they move my desk one more time, then then, I, then I'm quitting. I'm going to quit. And, and I told Dom, too, because they've moved my desk four times already this year, and I used to be over by the window, and I could see the squirrels, and they were married, but then they switched from the swing line to the Boston stapler, but I kept my swing line stapler because it didn't bind up as much, and, and I kept the staples for the swing line stapler. Okay, Milton. And, oh, no, it's not okay because if they make me, if they, if they take my, my stapler, then I'll, I'll, I'll have to I'll set the building on fire. Okay, well, that sounds, uh, sounds great. Uh, I'll talk to you later, all right? Bye. Milton just gets, like, further and further away from... The action, whatever you were talking about, yeah. As yeah. the movie, as the movie goes on, like he becomes for more and more and more distant and alienated, right? And I think that's it. Like, it seems like it's reflected in the performance as well. <laughs> it is, and and Mike, Mike, for great direction that he had, is that he kept making him smaller and smaller until by the time I just he was talking about this loud, not as loud as he talked. <laughs> but he would he would give you a little latitude. Uh, that one that you just heard, he the squirrels line. <laughs> he said, "What? What would? How? How would Milton describe two squirrels <laughs> on the line?" And I said, "The only way he could understand it was if they were married." So can I say that? And he said, "Yeah, I can say that." <laughs> There's something to like the the. Um the perspectives in the film are so subjective and they so deeply reflect the way that working in an office, your view becomes completely myopic. You know, you don't have 
you don't have a grand picture view of the interrelationships. You just get sent further and further towards the basement. <laughs> Which is the first, I think, office thing that did that. I mean, the, the drudgery of the office. There's a lot of office movies and a lot of office things before that, but nothing, nothing that showed the drudgery and pain <laughs> of that life. How did you realize that that movie was something other than uh, a B-movie with your friends? All of, we, like I said, we saw each other at auditions all the time, whether it was Paul or, you know, uh, anybody. And after about a year, and this is right when DVDs hit, uh, in 2000, maybe, 2001, we'd come up to each other and said, are, are you having people come up and talk to you about the our failed movie? Uh, and they'd go, yeah, they're quoting the movie to me. They were, they're specifically quoting lines that you know nobody should have ever seen but it became a, a dvd mouth-to-mouth explosion in about 2001 i mean it really also look you were on a wonderful network sitcom that you were wonderful on <laughs> thank you i've sp- i've spoken to my passion for news radio already for 20 minutes on this show <laughs> but uh i think this like wrote you a check for life like I'm not i'm not talking about <laughs> no, your residual you, check i'm sure it's modest no it's, but like, it is modest uh but that's that's okay I, I think i agree with you in that aspect of because then you're you have a a body of work you know and and news radio and that movie gave me a body of work in the early 2000s where because i would walk into and they would know what i was i was about did Barry come to you as an audition or an offer? It, I, it Barry came to me. Uh, they talked to me about it first, and they said, "Would you be willing to?" Because we haven't found who we like, and I was the last one. I was the last person before they were going to kill themselves. I think. <laughs> <laughs> and Bill, Bill said, "Would you? Would you mind coming and reading?" I said, "Yeah, sure. I, I love the part. I'm happy to show it. I, I don't do a lot of auditions now, so it was." It was a little terrifying to do because I only do a couple a year, and you know. Uh, so I came in, and, and he liked it. Uh, we got we did the pilot, and then the pilot was good, and and he liked the pilot, and uh, and HBO said, "Where's this guy going?" Because uh, in the pilot, we had written him as just a complete asshole. He yells at yells at him all the time. He had he was always up. He was he was up ninety five you know, degrees up, and uh, there was really nowhere for him to go. Kind of an archetypal yeah. hitman's boss. Yeah, and which was fun, and we had a great time filming it, and it looked good in the pilot. And then HBO says, but where's he going to go? Where What's what's the through line? And, and Bill and Alec Berg uh, said, you're right. Uh, that's, it didn't give him anywhere to go. So... We reshot during the first and second show that we shot. We reshot my part of the pilot uh, with the idea that let's make him into bad uncle. Really start him out really just, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to do it really badly uh, because I'm all about what I want, <laughs> nothing about what you want. I'm going to control you completely. But then you can build from there to to somebody that he's frustrated with. And, and you know, by the end of the first season, we did get up to, you know, the top. 
I love the fact that your character on Barry, who is the he is the string puller for uh, Bill Hader's character Barry, who's a hitman. Right. You know, he's the intermediary. He's the guy who books the hits, basically. Correct. That he has some of those same Jimmy James qualities, which is to say that he has a similar kind of Midwestern or maybe Central Southern, you know, Texas or exactly. Oklahoma mm-hmm. or something. Sure. Um, sincere geniality to him, even as he is very much a monster. <laughs> He's a monster who actually does love his, quote, nephew. Um but he is a monster, and that can't be forgotten. <laughs> You're at the point in your career where you could, if you wanted to, just retire and be retired and go fishing or equivalent. That sounds great. <laughs> Let's do it today. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what are, you, what are you trying to do with the rest of your career? Well, I think it's the same thing I've been trying to do for a while, which is work on quality scripts with quality people, people who I think are, you know, amazing actors that I can learn from. So if I have an opportunity to do that, I, you know, I'm, I'm doing it. I mean, right now I'm working with Rufus Sewell on Man in the High Castle, one of the best English actors in the world. And I'm learning great things from him. Um, but my, my main choice is, is good scripts. Good scripts. I don't want to turn straw into gold. I want to start with gold, go to platinum. Uh, and mostly, as a, as a journeyman actor, you have to turn straw into gold. Uh, so it's uh, it's a real pleasure to be able to pick projects that I think are good. I, I think I've picked pretty well. Um, you can't pick good all the time, but uh, you just go by the people that you want to work with and quality of the script. Stephen Root, I'm so grateful that you took the time to come and be on uh, Bullseye. I've admired work, your work for so long, and I'm so happy to get to talk oh, to you. I really appreciate it. Thanks. I'm happy to work. Stephen Root, like I said, great in everything. Every role unique, compelling, hilarious whenever it is called to be. And I will say that his part on news radio as the boss, Jimmy James, the man so nice they named him twice, is absolutely one of my favorite television characterizations in a comedy ever. And you can and should just buy the DVDs of news radio and sit back, relax, and enjoy them. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. My producer, Kevin, just saw a car commercial shot from one of the offices in our building. It truly is a dream to live here in what we call Tinseltown. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Our interstitial music is by DJW, a.k.a. Dan Wally. Thanks for sharing it with us, Dan. Our theme song is called Huddle Formation. It's by the band The Go Team. They and their label Memphis Industries provided it to us. Our thanks to them. And before you go, we have 15 years of this show. Going back to the days when it was called The Sound of Young America, literally hundreds of interviews. They're almost all archived. You can find them all on our website at MaximumFun.org. 
Uh, you can also find many of them on our YouTube channel, especially the recent ones. We put we put them each up as, as we make them. They're easy to share and listen to there. Um, you can also find us on Facebook and on Twitter. You can just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. We're at Bullseye on Twitter. That's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.